Welcome to our latest episode of the Beyond Devices podcast. My name is Jan Dawson and my co-host with me as always is Aaron Miller. Today we're going to be talking about a few different things. Firstly, we're going to talk about the Apple Music launch that happened this week, um, yesterday as we're recording on Wednesday. Um, and that'll be our major first topic. Our question of the week that always happens at the middle of our episodes is going to be related to that, but uh, focusing on a specific issue. And the question is, how is Apple's PR strategy changing and evolving? Um, partly in light of the fact that Apple's longtime head of PR, Katie Cotton, has moved on recently, uh, and partly perhaps as a result of Tim Cook's different attitude towards these things from perhaps Steve Jobs' attitude in the past. And then our third topic, we're going to look at a piece that was written this week by Brent Simmons, which talked about the fate of indie app developers in, in the iOS app store and, and a fairly bleak take that he had on this earlier this week. And we just wanted to discuss uh, some of the points that he raised in that post that he did. And then we'll wrap up with a new feature, which we're calling our weekly pick. And we'll come back to that right at the end of the episode. So first of all, Apple Music. Uh, this launched uh, Tuesday morning in a slightly unusual fashion because it required not just a download of a new app, but actually a download of an update to uh, Apple's iOS operating system version 8.4. Um, one of the interesting side effects of which was those of us that are running the developer preview for iOS 9 don't yet have access to Apple Music on those devices where we're running that. And we can talk about that a little bit later. Um, but it launched yesterday morning um, and uh, shortly afterwards Beats 1 went live uh, and so we've now had about 24 hours of, of this service as we're recording this podcast. Um, we've been playing around with it and uh, able to form some first impressions. But I wanted to go to you first, Aaron, and see what your take was on the service so far. Yeah, so, I mean, honestly, my biggest concern was being able to update yesterday <laughs> at the time. I mean, and, and the reason I felt anxious is because I really wanted to be a part of that Beats 1 rollout that was at mm -hmm. uh, 9 a.m. Pacific and... And the, uh, was it, yeah, it was at nine, right? And then the rollout was an hour before for the iOS update. Right. Um, you know, on my end, it was really smooth. Um, the, the, the download happened quickly. The installs went fine. I did it on my iPad, on my phone, my wife's phone, and, and everything went quickly and smoothly. Uh, I wasn't able to really ever check in and see if other people had trouble. But I was glad that that went so smoothly. I, I was actually kind of stunned that Apple was timing the iOS release just an hour before Beats 1 was kicking off. Because mm -hmm. I knew that that was what was going to push most people to do it quickly, right? Is right. to start listening to Beats 1 because there's so much curiosity about the radio station. And, mm -hmm. and I was kind of shocked that they did that. But presumably their servers held up okay. I haven't read any horror stories. About yeah, it seemed it. to go fine. I mean, I was following things on Twitter during the morning and, and there were relatively few complaints and those that there were were people on LTE or whatever rather than a Wi-Fi network or right. people whose internet was being particularly slow that day or something. So it was uh, not really any issues that I saw, at least with regard to Apple's servers or server load or anything like that. I still don't get why the window was so short, though. Yeah, it seems it, like you'd either push back Beats 1 or you'd push up the iOS update, but a one-hour window for everybody to get updated to be able to listen. I, I wonder if maybe that was strategic, like they wanted to make sure they you know, had decent server capacity, but um, I don't know. Yeah, no, it was funny. I mean, it, it did also mean that those of us that were very early to update had almost an hour of Beats 1 running before <laughs> it formally launched, which was an odd time because... You mean Brian Eno was playing. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Zane Lowe was playing a, a variety of ambient music from Brian Eno and, 
um, and occasionally interrupting with little mic checks and things like that um, and conversations with people in the studio and it, it wasn't clear to me whether this was um, deliberate or whether this was just a lack of uh, an uncharacteristic lack of polish on Apple's part um, but it was strangely sort of reminiscent of the piece that the New York Times did last week which we'll talk about later on but in which it talked about Zane Lowe's early frustrating experience in his new studio and, and the equipment not working properly and having problem with the mic so it was a funny sort of jarring reminder of that piece from last week um, and you know generated lots of commentary on Twitter about what was going on exactly yeah. but uh, right, right on cue on the hour it, it did then go live and, and obviously it was very polished from that time onward um, it was interesting to see a number of people commenting on, on Zane Lowe's style and the fact that he talked over the music which of course was something we talked about a couple yeah. of weeks ago when, when we covered the, the uh, Beats 1 DJs as part of our question of the week then. It helped that I was expecting it. I didn't know that that was part of his, on, his sort of radio persona and, mm. and you know we had discussed it when we did that question of the week and you know you kind of shared the way he did it so when it happened I actually kind of enjoyed it because I knew it was sort of his style um, I think right. a lot of the people who were annoyed by it were just sort of caught off guard because they're not used to DJs doing that on the radio. Um, it had a great like like excitement to the beginning. You know, I thought he was really articulate at the front uh, without, you know, going on and on. I thought the right. initial song choice was great. You know, the idea of picking sort of a, I don't know if obscure is the right word, but a not very well-known band. Um, mm -hmm. You know, because the whole point of Beats 1 is this idea of music discovery based on these right. tastemakers, right? These people who, who mm -hmm. are, are supposed to be bringing the music to us. And, uh, and I thought that was a great choice to pick something relatively obscure. Yeah, no, it was a good, good example of the kind of stuff that he's going to do on the service. Um, and, and, you know, the first half hour, which is about all I listened to before I switched to trying out other features of the service, the, the one, one complaint was I found it a bit jarring, the, the mm -hmm. kind of genre hopping from, you know, that the first track, I think Beck was the second track, and mm -hmm. then within the first few tracks there was an ACDC, which was a real change of pace, and then there was some either hip-hop or rap in there, I can't remember exactly which the first tracks were, but it really hopped around quite a bit, and I found it jarring. It, it, it hopped from, you know, genres that I quite enjoy to ones I don't, and... You know, my instinct was just to turn it off, and eventually I did turn it off. I found it was giving me something of a headache. Um, I had one of my kids in the room, and she was like, why are you listening to this? You clearly aren't enjoying it. It's <laughs> like, well, I kind of have to listen to it because yeah. I want to get a sense of it. But eventually I did turn it off just because, you know, and it reminded me of why I tend not to listen to radio. You just don't have that control that we're all so accustomed to having with the skip button um, when you listen to digital music, whether it's your own tracks or something like Pandora or Spotify or whatever. Um, but yeah, I, I, I didn't enjoy it that much. I, you know, there was this element of kind of this shared experience on a global basis, which we haven't really had previously with a live radio experience. And so that is new and there, there was a certain amount of excitement associated with that. Um, and I've returned to it a couple of times since and the New York station was broadcasting today, not Ebro Darden's, but the, the one that's just called uh, Beats One NYC, I think. Um, and I actually quite enjoyed that one and it felt like it, that DJ was trying less hard to kind of promote the service in a way right. and so he wasn't repeating these exclusive tracks as much which was something that Zane Lowe did a lot early on he wasn't sort of talking up you know coming to you live you know always on you know making yeah. a huge big deal about the launch and so on it felt like it had settled down a bit by today and I, I enjoyed that a bit more and enjoyed more of the tracks that were played which felt like they belonged together better which was kind of a funny thing to me because you know Jimmy Iovine in his speech at WWDC kind of talked about 
you know, the, the, the only song that's important to one, as the one you're listening to now is the one that comes next. And this was one of the value propositions of human curation and DJs and so on. And it felt like it was one of the things I liked least about Zane Lowe's approach yesterday was it, that what came next was often jarringly dissimilar to what had come before and didn't seem to go very well with it. Yeah, well, and, and you know, this is what you have to do when you have one radio station. I mean, there's no other radio station right now that Apple has. I mean, right. there's the mm-hmm. there's the curated stuff. Or, no, sorry, the algorithmic stuff that you can get, you know, the, the sort of pre-made playlists that you can play through the Apple Music service. But, I mean, when you actually have DJs and, and everything, there's just going to be a lot of bouncing around. Um, yeah. You know, I actually, so I was at an amusement park all day yesterday with, with my family. And so I was mostly checking in, you know, when I was, you know, on kitty land duty kind of thing. <laughs> and uh, as my son did, you know, bumper cars or, uh, you know, the airplanes for the 50th time. Uh, <laughs> and it was nice being able to check in because I was able to hear all three DJs. Um, I thought all of them had a great style and radio persona. They all seemed pretty engaging. Um, I did hear Julia Adenuga jump in a few times on music. I didn't hear Ibra Darden do that once, um, mm. which uh, not, and I don't know if he did it, but... Um, I, I, I liked all of them. I really did. And I noticed yeah. the same sort of disconnect song to song with the other DJs mm-hmm. as well. Uh, and so I'm just kind of curious how this plays out. You know, I, yeah. I there were moments I had yesterday when I thought, boy, I can imagine myself leaving this on throughout the day while I'm at work. And mm-hmm. uh, and then there are other moments it's like, boy, if somebody came into my office right now and heard me listening to this, I'd be shocked. <laughs> and, and I don't know how I feel about that. I mean, a part of me feels like, yeah, mm-hmm. this is great because it's stretching me, you know, it, musically. I'm going to find mm-hmm. new stuff I like, which is kind of the point. But right. I had, but there were moments when I had the exact same experience you're describing. It was just like, eh, I'm turning this off for now. So I go poked around. Yeah. I went and poked around in other parts of the service. Yeah, and I, and I found those parts work much better. And, and the app as a whole, you know, Beats One aside, and, you know, my respect response to Beats One is very largely driven by my taste in music, which is a weird mix of eclectic and narrow, um, in that I like lots of different genres, but within each genre, I tend to like only one or two artists or styles or whatever. And so there's just most music I just don't enjoy listening to. There's right. very specific things that I do enjoy listening to. And, and that's not the case for everybody. There's plenty of people out there who love the kind of diverse mix of stuff that Zane Lowe was playing yesterday. So it's very much a personal reaction. Um, but the rest of it, I really loved. I, I felt like the rest of the app and the service worked just the way I hoped it would with you know, the, the discovery element in terms of you know, being able to search for stuff and then very easily with two taps, add it to my library where it then shows up on my other devices that are that are connected to iCloud music and you know it very uh, it worked just the way I hoped it would and there was wonderful tight integration between the music I own and the music I was adding in that way you know all showed up together as my music which is kind of how I always thought it should work so that side of it I loved and the for you tab um, I actually at first wasn't great but then I spent a bit more time training with the little circles the jiggling circles <laughs> that you get to select your genres and artists and I found that frustrating. I wrote that up a little bit in the review that I did on, on yeah. the blog. But, um, you know, beyond that, I found that the effort that I put into that seemed to pay off and the For You playlists that I'm getting now are better. But they are human curated playlists. They're not just algorithmically driven. And that's the interesting thing about these is they, you know, some of them, somebody was pointing out on Twitter today, you know, there was a playlist which was called Third Wave Scar Songs About Food or something <laughs> like that. So it's like not just Scar as a genre, but Third Wave Scar 
and then third wave scar songs that were about food. That's clearly not an algorithm um, driving that. And so, you know, there is that element of human curation and of, you know, people actually choosing these playlists and what really goes well together and, and also the order in which these things appear, which is, you know, the big thing that algorithms don't tend to do very well. Right. And so that side of things I've enjoyed. You know, some playlists I've, I've abandoned pretty quickly. Others I've listened to almost all the way through. Um, definitely discovered some new things. I've hit the little heart icon a couple of times to like tracks and that kind of thing. So, you know, the core service I really enjoyed. Beats 1 was always the piece I was never sure about. And like I said, it doesn't, isn't a great fit for me, but I can see how it is for other people. Yeah, and I won't be surprised if the radio station evolves over time. You know, I, I or if there's another one that comes out, I could picture. Yeah, I could picture you know two to three stations um, as time goes on. Mm-hmm. But I think Beats One would always be the flagship. But they maybe add right. some other stations that are a little more genre oriented, uh, or at mm-hmm. least tempo kind of thing, like one that's slower, one that's faster, that kind of a thing. You know, one that's harder. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, yeah. I, you know, I, there's a lot I really, really like about the service. Um, as we were driving home, and we've talked about the appeal of Siri before. Um, mm-hmm. You know, as we were driving home, I tested out Siri as it relates to the streaming side, I deliberately calling it music that I didn't have on my phone. And, mm-hmm. and it worked fantastically. There was only one weird moment. My wife plays the cello, and we tried pulling up the one of the Bach cello suites. And mm-hmm. the first cello suite is really well known. It's the one you know that a lot of students play um, as as a recital piece, and it and uh, <laughs> it brought up. Boy, I wish I should have written it down. It brought up an oboe version of the Bach cello suites um, <laughs> for like an album that was like a, a lullaby album for kids. Oh, and right. I was like, I really? Remember. Like that's what you bring up for something like that? Yeah, um, it's so, not Yo-Yo Ma. Right, yeah, exactly. In fact, I tried searching for Yo-Yo Ma, and I know there are, you know, albums that exist of him playing that cello mm-hmm. suite, but, but then my wife, you know, said, well, let's try this uh, Shostakovich thing, which she, her classical music knowledge is far greater than mine, but, uh, but right. it found it found that piece right away, and uh, yeah, and and sounded great. So, so you know, having the Siri access, you know, we talked about having. Apple Music integrated into the Apple ecosystem being an advantage. Mm-hmm. Um, that was a great example of how it worked. I mean, really, like almost any kind of music you can listen to without even having to really touch your phone, other than call up Siri. So that's right. really yeah, cool. Yeah, that's the side of it. Yeah, that's the side of it. I still need to test. Actually, I haven't really spent much time on that. But but I remember you talking about that one being one of the things that you were looking forward to a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, um, one of the sour notes for me was the the desktop side of things. Mm-hmm. Um, because you know, if you share links or anything like that, a lot of the time people are going to see those on a on a computer of some kind, whether it's a Windows machine or a Mac, and they're going to want to open those links. And yesterday, until late afternoon, you, you simply couldn't open those links because you'd pop open a web page um, on iTunes.com, and then you'd go to actually interact with it in any way, and it would try to open iTunes. And of course, we were all running the previous version of iTunes. Um, if you updated OS 10 yesterday. You got a new version of OS 10, but it didn't come with a new version of iTunes bundled in, and, and that new version didn't become available until late afternoon, which was just, it seemed a bizarre um, slip, uh, especially given how close the timing was that we've already talked about between iOS 8.4 and Beats 1 launching in the morning. Um, there was no real communication from Apple about any of this. Later in the day, the, the iTunes download page started to say iTunes 12.2 coming soon, but other than that, there's no real communication about it. And I, I'm still baffled as to why that was, but it seemed a really strange omission uh, unless they were somehow trying to you know, avoid overloading the servers or something, which again, is something you could plan for. So 
This seems strange. Yeah, that was strange. In fact, I because I was away from my computer all day yesterday, I didn't even encounter this until I got home and was kind of catching up on the news feed. I just all mm-hmm. day was assuming that iTunes had been updated along with iOS. And so when it, right. when it wasn't, I was kind of like, boy, that is really weird. But again, I don't know if it was like a deliberate rollout. There are going to be, you know, quite a few desktop users on Windows that mm-hmm. don't necessarily have iPhones. And maybe there was right. a, you know, a, a, like a stepped rollout just to avoid, you mm-hmm. know, too much server load. But uh, it's hard to say. I don't know what was going on on the inside there. Um, yeah, usually yeah. it feels more, stuff feels more coordinated than that, but it didn't seem mm-hmm. to be this time. Yeah, and the other thing that was missing, as we mentioned earlier, was the new version of iOS 9 that brings Apple Music, which Eddie Q's now tweeted is supposed to be coming early next week. But uh, again, there was no communication about that at all, which meant that a lot of Apple's most avid users, you know, who are for better or worse using the developer preview at this point for, for good reasons or bad, um, you know, as developers or otherwise, were not able to use the service on that device. If they happened to have more than one device and an older one that was running an older version of the OS, then they would have been fine, which, which I fortunately did. But... Yeah, I've been using uh, iOS 9 on my main phone for the last little while and uh, meant that I, I still don't have Apple Music on there. Right. It's a good thing the public beta is not out yet for iOS 9 because I think that yeah, would have no made kidding. a lot of yeah. people really upset. Yeah. No, that's right, I think. Well, good. Any, any more thoughts about Apple Music? Uh, you know, I, I feel like this is something that has a ton of depth that I haven't yet fully discovered. I mean, I've right. played around with Connect a little bit. There's not a ton there. Um, in fact, mm-hmm. mysteriously, there are artists showing up in my Connect stream that I haven't actually followed. Like, I'm seeing mm-hmm. a lot of Moby, and I haven't followed Moby. And it's not that I don't like Moby, but, uh, you know, he's, for whatever reason, showing up in my Connect stream. I yeah, it auto follows artists. it also follows artists that you have in your library. So if ah. you have any Moby in your library, there is a setting. If you go into Connect where it says, you know, find more artists or whatever, there's a little switch that you can flip one way or the other where it auto follows people that are in your library and you can turn that off if you want I see um, but yeah it, it followed an eclectic mix of people most of whom are not there and are never going to be there on connect probably but uh, but yeah I discovered that as I was sort of exploring yesterday I must have an Avril Levine song somewhere on my computer because <laughs> I can't figure out why she's in my in my connect stream you know, I yeah, yeah. So Connect seems potentially cool. I, I expressed skepticism before about this not really being mm-hmm. web facing, you know. And you know, YouTube yeah. as a music discovery thing is so awesome because anybody with a browser, mm-hmm. any kind of device, almost can pull up a YouTube right. video and listen to the music. I, I wonder how useful this is going to be for music discovery, but we'll see. Um, yeah. I. Uh, But yeah, I just feel like there's a ton of depth and not just depth in terms of like its features and I'm coming to get to know them, but also just in the user interface. Uh, There's there there are buttons that I don't fully appreciate or understand yet. The the ellipses seems to be a really important uh, tool to use. Um, You know, I uh, so so I, I mean, I expect I'll get to know it better. I am already planning on not using Spotify. I pulled it from my dock. Uh, just because mm-hmm. I want to have a commitment to this so that I can learn it right. and, and then I can decide to go back to Spotify later or not. I I, I am really curious how Spotify is going to do in the next couple of months just with all this free streaming, yeah. you know, for three months. I think it's going to, I think it's going to hurt them pretty badly. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'm curious to see, see the impact on Apple's financials over the next three months because, you know, the, the calendar quarter aligns almost perfectly with the free trial period, which means... Apple's going to have three months where it's probably going to see really depressed iTunes music sales, 
at the same time as it's paying out royalties on Apple Music, but it's not making money from Apple Music right. yet. Um, and you know, none of those is huge in the grand scheme of things for Apple. You know, it's a few hundred million here, a few hundred million there, which you know to anybody else is real money. But uh, it's uh, but it's still it's going to show up in the financials, I think, which will be very interesting to see. It'll also be interesting to see how Apple reports the sign up numbers, um, mm-hmm. whether or not they keep those quiet. I, you know, it, I won't be surprised yeah. if you see a hundred million new Apple Music, you know, tryouts or, or accounts mm-hmm. at the end of three months. I, I suspect we won't see anything about them, though, until the next Apple event, whenever it is. I, I feel like that sort of announcement right. will be an onstage kind of thing. Like if that, yeah. if that, if the mysterious Apple TV update ever shows up, I could picture that being a context for, you know, sort of a public, Absolutely. you know, information yeah. update on Apple Music. Yeah, yeah, and no, that makes sense. Kind of context of Apple's, you know, footprint and content and all the rest of it would be good, would be good context for that. There was one other little thing I noticed when I, or two things I noticed when I was out and about yesterday. Um, you know, I would add a couple of the songs that were being played on Beats One, which is a really handy feature being able to add that song directly mm. to your library as yeah. it's playing on Beats One. I thought that was cool, but there were a couple times when the song I wanted to add, it presumably didn't have streaming rights because. The, I hit the little ellipsis, you know, button to add it to my to my music, and the the option wasn't there. And, and right. in fact, that yeah, was I the thing. That. And you mentioned this in the write up you did. That was the thing for the Pharrell song. I, I right. went to add it to my music, um, and it wasn't available. So Apple apparently has right. the right to stream it or to to play mm-hmm. it on the radio, but play. not to actually mm-hmm. put it in anybody's library yet. Yeah, or it didn't. It did show up later in the day. Oh, um, so maybe. And so that was an interesting a, thing. So yeah, that was. But I, I'm still discovering broken links and things. Um, yeah. You know, the things where you you go to add. Like I went to add a song from Beats Music, and instead of add, taking me to that song, actually, what I did was I, I tapped the ellipsis in the player, and said, you know, show me in the store or whatever. And instead of taking me to that song in the store, it took me to the Beats Music page in the store um, or on, on in iTunes. So it's things like that that aren't quite right yet and that need fixing. So there are little bugs and glitches still here and there. There was one other weird thing I noticed, and I, I have no idea if this has to do with my carrier or what, but you know, I would be listening to Beats 1. I'd hit pause because my son was coming back and asking me if he could go on a different ride. And, and mm-hmm. so I'd pull out my headphones, talk with him. He would get off on the ride. I'd put my headphones back, and I'd hit play. And, you know, because the radio station is live, I'm expecting it to pick up wherever it is, not to pick up from where I right. left off. And the weird thing that would happen mm. is the streaming buffer would play out. So I had maybe 10 seconds right. of the song buffer uh-huh. that would play through. And then I would get silence and it would never pick up again with the radio station. Right. I'd have to tr- I'd have to yeah. s- hit stop, then start again. And then it'd pick up where things had left off. I, I, I suspect there are going to be little glitchy things like that, you know, over the coming mm-hmm. month or two that Apple's going to have to work out. And again, that maybe it was just a weird thing with my carrier, but I suspect it was how the streaming is set up for Beats 1. Right. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think, that, I think that's the kind of kink that they'll work out in the next little bit. Okay, well, let's move on to our question of the week. And the question of the week is, um, how is Apple's PR strategy evolving and changing? Um, and the context, of course, is the change in Apple's PR leadership from Katie Cotton, who ran it for a long time and uh, left Apple a while ago, um, to the interim leadership. And I think Steve Dowling's now officially been appointed the new head of PR. Um, but of course, also at the same time, we've had the transition from Steve Jobs to Tim Cook in the last few years, and that's also impacted things. Yeah, so I, I think this is an interesting question because 
people keep talking about the new Apple, uh, especially following WWDC and Tim Cook seems to be more open. Apple's getting more involved in charitable efforts. I mean, we're definitely seeing an evolution happen. But PR is one of those areas where Apple is especially notorious because they've been so tight-lipped for so long. Really, the truth was is Steve Jobs ruled Apple with an iron fist when it came to leaks. Um, you know, And there were times when major companies were sort of set aside because they leaked Apple-related information earlier than they were supposed to. Um, so I think it's going to be interesting to compare. Yan, I mean, as we start answering this question, why don't you tell us a little bit about the old way uh, and fill in some of those details for people who don't maybe didn't know Apple during those years? Yeah, I mean, I think the old way is probably best summarized as kind of official channels or off the record um, in that, you know, most of the announcements that Apple made would either be official press releases, official Apple events and, and things that were very much kind of on Apple letterhead, as it were, or they wouldn't be attributable to Apple at all. In other words, they would often come from Apple, but they would come through kind of unnamed sources in various well-placed news articles and things like that in a few favored publications. So, you know, Steve Jobs was very much about not allowing leaks, and yet they placed, you know, what looked to many you know, uneducated observers like leaks in various news outlets and that kind of thing, but were actually planted by Apple as a way of getting the word out when they didn't want to put out an official announcement from the company itself. But there was very little um, of sort of access to executives. You know, Steve Jobs very rarely did interviews. Um, there was very little access to other executives either. People like Johnny Ive were very much kind of kept behind closed doors. Um, and, uh, you know, it was very much kind of occasional public pronouncements from Apple and then more or less radio silence the rest of the time except for these sort of off-the-record unnamed source type pieces in some of the major news publications and that's really the way it worked for the vast majority of Steve Jobs time at the head of Apple and, and Katie Cotton's tenure as the head of PR. So this so what's happened in the in the week or two <coughs> leading up to Apple Music seems to be indicating a change in the way things operate why don't you give us a rundown of kind of how things behaved in the two weeks leading up to Apple Music? Yeah, and really, I think you can even go back a little bit further than that to the announcement of Apple Music itself at WWDC. I mean, obviously, the major details of the service were announced there. Um, the Apple Music service, there were demos on stage. We had Jimmy Iovine and, and Drake and others speaking on stage about an Eddie Q doing the demos. And um, the, the Beats 1 DJs announced and videos and so on. If there's one area where there really was not a lot of detail at that time, it was around Beats 1. But, you know, that was the classic kind of big event thing. But the other thing that happened around the same time was that Apple uh, did a lot of interviews with its executives with major publications. Um, you know, there was the Wall Street Journal and The Guardian as two sort of traditional news publications. There was uh, Billboard and Rolling Stone and Music Week, all of which got interviews with Eddie Q, Jimmy Iovine, Trent Reznor in some cases. Um, you know, these are lots of interviews. And, and, you know, the content of those interviews is mostly about of positioning and messaging so the key information had already been released during the keynote but this was really about the thinking behind the service was the topic of a lot of those interviews uh, and how the service would be positioned and how it would be different without naming names from from various competitors and that kind of thing so the, the kind of process started there was that fleshing out of these things you know no huge information but as i say positioning and messaging at that time um, but it's kind of carried on since then and the other, the other big milestone before the last couple of weeks was the uh the Taylor Swift thing that happened where Taylor Swift obviously put up this blog post which we discovered last discussed last week uh, and which Apple then responded to very quickly with a change in the royalty situation 
during the free trial period. But you know, around that too, Eddie Q made himself available for a couple of interviews uh, with publications like Rolling Stone and, and uh, the New York Times and uh, Recode as well. I think uh, you know. So again, access to executives, you know, without a specific announcement to make as such, but just again fleshing out the thinking and the messaging behind this change in policy that happened. Um, so one of the interesting so, yeah. things in that process was the way Eddie Q was using Twitter. Uh, that played out even a little bit in the last few days. Kind of talk about that because that, I, mean, I mean, the idea of an, of an Apple executive tweeting more than, I don't know, once a month <laughs> seemed, yeah. seemed really surprising. So, so what do you think is going on with the way Eddie Q has been, you know, going public on Twitter? Yeah, I mean, I think this is one of the fun things that we've seen happen over the last few months is that the executives have become much looser on Twitter. It doesn't mean that they're spending all day on Twitter or anything like that. Um, and most of them still aren't interacting all that much, although Eddie Q did today um, and yesterday. But uh, yeah, absolutely. We're seeing Eddie Q, we're seeing Tim Cook, we're seeing especially Lisa P. Jackson, who, who runs or has run environmental initiatives for Apple now as a head of policy role. Um, at Apple, um, even Angela Ahrens with the occasional tweet here and there. So definitely a much looser approach. And Eddie Q in particular, I mean, the Taylor Swift situation, he responded on Twitter to that. Before Apple put out a press release or anything else like that, Eddie Q was on Twitter tweeting that there had been a policy change and that they were looking forward to, to seeing some of those indie artists on Apple Music when it launched. And, and just in the last 24 hours or so, He's been responding to certain users about when the iOS 9 beta would become available um, that supports Apple Music. Um, you know about uh, streaming bit rates and things like that um, some detailed technical questions he's been responding on Twitter which we've never seen from Apple before so that's a huge change as well but they just seem to be much freer and looser um, in these public settings than they have been before which I think is another sign of the change that's happening so let's kind of take this to the next step because it, it, it's curious to think where this might be leading and what Apple might look like in the in the years to come I mean do we expect them to kind of weave back into you know the, the the tight lips or do you think it will it, it will stay where it is do you think it's going to keep getting a little more free i mean for example do you picture employees ever having you know rather than executives but employees becoming more engaged this way kind of what what do you think this shift right now sort of foretells when it comes to apple pr yeah, I think we're seeing the shape of things to come. It doesn't mean that announcements are going to be made, you know, on Twitter necessarily all the time. I think that's probably a bit of a one-off. But, you know, it does mean that we're going to see in between events and, and by way of fleshing things out, we're going to see more stuff come out through other channels, but with, you know, an official sort of Apple imprimatur on it. So, you know, a good example of that was this past week ahead of the launch of Apple Music. We had a long piece in the Times, the New York Times, about Zane Lowe, but in the course of that piece released lots of details about other DJs who would be hosting shows on Apple Music that hadn't been announced before. So, you know, Pharrell Williams and Drake, Elton John, um, Dr. Dre himself, St. Vincent, Josh Homme, um, you know, a lot of these names um, that hadn't been released before were released through that New York Times piece. And yet this wasn't one of those we've heard from sources close to the situation. You know, this was part of an interview and a, an official piece that New York Times had clearly been invited to do um, and the coverage that they've been invited to provide in that way. So, you know, even with some of the same publications and the New York Times and Wall Street Journal have always been two of Apple's favorites. Um, some of this communication is moving from kind of the off-the-record unnamed sources stuff to now on-the-record just official interviews and that kind of thing. So I think that is the shape of things to come. I think you'll see a lot more of that kind of thing. We've seen some profiles of Johnny Ive, um, Stephen Fry's piece about 
um, design at Apple that coincided with the change in, in Johnny Ive's uh, job title and so on. So, you know, we've seen a lot of that kind of change, and I think we will see more of that going forward. And I think we'll see more of this, you know, tweeting, potentially even blogging. I mean, there was uh, Ian Rogers, who's one of the music executives at Apple, did a blog post on his personal blog, of all things, um, about um, the launch of Apple Music, and in it provided the key elements of timing for when iOS 8.4 and Beats 1 would go live. Um, that was subsequently removed, so I don't think that was sanctioned, but it's a sign again of this kind of loosening of things. And, uh, you know, Pharrell was the first one to tweet about the fact that Freedom would be available exclusively on Apple Music. Zane Lowe tweeted about the Eminem interview. Um, you know, so some of these announcements have been made via Twitter and not through the usual Apple channel. So I do feel like there, there's a change here and it's going to stick beyond just this launch. Do you think it's going to reach into the hardware space? Because, I mean, Apple's really tight-lipped about hardware. They love the element of surprise when it comes to announcing new things. Mm-hmm. Um, well, and not just hardware. I should add software, right, when they're adding features to right. OS X iOS. I mean, do you picture this sort of more open approach extending to those parts of what Apple does? Because really, that's where they make all their money is in those areas. Right, yeah. And I, I don't know if we'll see quite the same approach. I mean, with Beats 1, it happened that this was quite a complicated element of something that they, they really felt like they ran out of time to discuss at WWDC. And to that extent, you know, it had to come out some other way. And I think Apple strung it out in this way to keep interest, to keep some publications happy with the access that they got and so on. So, you know, I feel like that was a part of the strategy here. And that wouldn't necessarily apply to a new hardware product or a new software product that would probably get decent stage time anyway. But you could see some some of the details being released in the same way as, say, the DJ stuff was for Apple Music. So, you know, I, I wouldn't totally rule out the fact that they might do some of this uh, with some of the other things that they might put out. Um, another interesting element of this change in PR strategy is that they've moved away from some of the traditional publications. You know, there have always been the major business publications, there have been some of the tech blogs and that kind of thing that have come up over the last few years. But another thing that's shown up both with the Apple Watch launch and now with Apple Music is specialist publications. So with the Apple Watch, lots of jewelry and fashion publications, uh, watch blogs and so on, getting access to the Apple Watch and, and being invited to the Apple Watch launch announcements and so on. Uh, with Apple Music, you know, some of the publications that got early access were uh, Rolling Stone and MTV and uh, Spin uh, and Music Week and, and other publications like that that are music specialists but not technology specialists per se. And so, you know, I think Apple's really using that broader range of publications to reach a number of people that would never read a tech blog or anything like that. Yeah, it's interesting to compare this all to the days when sort of the, the most interesting or surprising thing you'd see is a Steve Jobs email that somebody publicizes, right? Back right. in those days when Steve Jobs was around and replying to people's emails. Uh, it, I agree this is going to be really interesting to see all this stuff play out. Any, any last thoughts you want to share? Anything else you think we should be thinking about when it comes to Apple PR heading into the future? Yeah, I suspect this isn't the kind of thing that's cast in stone yet either. I mean, we've talked about, you know, is it likely to continue? But I suspect it's going to continue to evolve as well. And I think, you know, as Tim Cook and the PR team and everybody else that's involved with this stuff gets used to this new way of doing things and figures out what works and what doesn't, I think we'll continue to see it change. I think you'll see, you know, that that greater freedom for the executives on Twitter and so on. But I think they'll continue to experiment with new and different ways of doing things. And I think that's in some ways as exciting as the fact that it's changed already is that, that it might continue to change. Yeah, I agree. You know, um, I, uh, I, 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 this whole like new Apple, right? This idea that seems to be sort of building this idea of a new Apple, a friendlier Apple. 
Um, it, it'll be curious to see if there are still going to be moments when Apple has to put its foot down, you know, when Apple has to be tough and the ways mm -hmm. it's been tough in the past. Um, I, I think the fact that they're building, you know, they, they had this massive cult of personality around Steve Jobs. And, you know, starting before he left, starting, the, you know, the, the, the sort of like starting to get new executives on stage during keynotes and so forth, it seems that that's now expanding and spilling out. Um, but it really seems to be shifting from a cult of personality around one exec executive to the same idea, but around multiple executives. And I'm curious if that is where it's going to be held. The nice thing, right, is that Apple has a relatively small executive team and all of them can be in constant contact with PR so that this stuff can still, right. it looks friendly and warm, but I wonder if it will still stay pretty well coordinated on the back end. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Tim Cook talked about doubling down on leaks a while back. You know, I don't think this means, you know, the whole kimono is suddenly going to open and we're going to see lots of stuff coming out before it's time. I think they're still going to very carefully control the message, but I think the way that the message actually gets out is going to change. Right. All right. Um, well, our, our final major topic to, uh, this week is to talk about Brent Simmons' piece that he wrote on his blog, In Essential, uh, which is at inessential.com. We'll post the link in the show notes. Uh, on the blog, but uh, he wrote a post titled Love, um, and the gist of the post is that it's really, really tough for the indie iOS app developer to, to succeed, and in fact, the odds are so stacked against him that you might as well assume that any indie app developer creating a new app is going to fail, and therefore that they ought to simply think about this as something that they do for love and not for money, and if it happens to make money, then that's nice. But um, he sort of suggests a, a shift and, and uh, you know, this isn't the first time we've heard this story. We've heard it from other people too. Um, but we just wanted to discuss this and see, see whether we agree with these ideas that Brent Simmons is talking about. And you know, if so, you know, what should be done about it? So Aaron, I don't know if you have any initial thoughts. Well, um, you know, one of the things that's kind of at the heart of this is the, um, the, the late 90s sort of era of being a Mac user. I, I, I mean, sort of built into this is the same sort of feeling you had back when, you know, to buy a Mac, you had to go to a specialty shop, uh, you know, probably the only one in town that sold Apple computers. Y you'd go in there and, uh, uh, you know, the guy who ran it was clearly doing this for the love. I mean, it was, it was, it was a totally different time of being a Mac user because it was a small community, you know, closely knit. I mean, I mean, back then Mac user groups were a much bigger deal than they are now uh, because mm -hmm. the people that use Macs sort of, you know, felt like part of their identity. Um, they connected right. with people that use Macs. And, and it was sort of an idea that back then, you know, you had this audience if you developed for the Mac. Uh, I remember those core applications, third-party applications that everybody uses as a, as a Mac user. And it's because the community was so tightly knit, it was really easy to get the word out on something that was great. Um, and so that's obviously completely gone because you have, you know, between the Mac and iOS, you've got hundreds of millions of, of, of Apple customers now. And there's no tight-knit community anymore. I mean, there are a lot of people using Macs that don't feel like it really isn't necessarily part of their identity. They just like it. They don't think much about it. And that was not at all the way mm -hmm. of Mac users back right, in the late right. 90s, early 2000s. 
Yeah, no, that's right. And there does, I think you used the word nostalgia in a conversation that we had before we started recording, but there does seem to be this nostalgia for this earlier time. And yet, you know, the world's moved on. And, and in some ways, you know, the, the, the iOS app store has become like almost any other kind of business venture in that, you know, and you, you can look up statistics, and I don't know if you have any off the top of your head, Aaron, but, you know, there are statistics about the percentage of businesses that fail and so on. And, you know, the, the iOS app store happens to be a context in which it's very easy to try something and therefore the rate of failure is going to be even higher than it is for, for most other businesses you know it, it, if you actually go and formally start a business there's lots of hoops that you have to jump through and that's a very formal thing that you really think very hard about you know creating an app is, is a very simple uh, act and submitting it to the app store is one too and so you know the bar is very low in that sense and so it shouldn't surprise us I feel like if the vast majority of people who try this fail in the sense that Brett Simmons is defining it, which is failing to make a living doing, uh, you know, app development and so on on an independent basis. Right. Well, and, you know, I think this is also fueled in part by the very early days of the App Store on iOS. I, I mean, you know, this is before EA, like Electronic Arts, got into making apps for, for the iPhone. This is before, right. uh, you know, you had sort of these newer companies that got tons of venture capital backing them. Uh, the, you know, a lot of these gaming companies, for example, these days. And, uh, you know, in those very early days, all of the hits were, uh, were indie developed. I, I mean, I remember some of those really early apps that were popular, like Trisim. I don't know if you ever played that game. Um, no. back in the day but it was the fir- it was one of the first big games that was an innovative model used the touchscreen really well um, and it became a story because this indie developer had made it and made a bunch of money off of it and, and it was sort of like it, in fact I think it was it was it was that sort of story that kicked off the gold rush um, into right. into the app store and we really did we had a period of gold rush we had a period where you know, anybody could show up in the way you described, and and a handful of those people were making a lot of money and getting publicity for the money that they were making, and there were these rags mm-hmm. to riches kind of stories coming out of the app store. Um, I think the truth of it is just like the real gold rush in California. Um, you know, uh, the the truth of it was there were a lot of people making apps even then that weren't making any money. Right. Um, yeah. And, and you know, like any market, as it matures, you know strategy starts to sort of take over and 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 bigger investments start to be played out and as the app store market has matured i think you've seen what you would expect to see right i mean these days you don't have people you know making a living pan you know like panning for gold in a stream somewhere in california instead what you have today are mining companies that mine gold have employees have huge capital investments to to do it mm-hmm. I, I think that's essentially what you're seeing in the app store is we had a brief period you know what's weird though is because it's technology it's all hyper accelerated I mean, I mean the, right. the iPhone right. is eight years old right I think it was just this, this, this week, week. Yeah. yeah it was mm-hmm. when the iPhone was launched eight years ago and uh, that's a really fast maturation for an industry right right um, but uh, uh, I, I think that's just sort of naturally what's going to happen. I, I think there are always going to be room for indies. I, you know, I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. I, I totally agreed with the, with, you know, sort of the somber approach to this. There, there will right. always be opportunities for indie developers, but uh, I think it's. Tr- I think he makes a great point. If you're not doing it for the love, um, then you can't really count on getting anywhere with it. 
uh, right. the, the developers that do it for love, like Marco Arment with Overcast. Um, mm-hmm. You know, he basically set out to make a podcast player he'd actually want to use. I right. don't know if he's making his living off of that now. I have no idea what his revenue is, mm-hmm. but it seems that uh, he succeeded at least in part because he essentially made something he wanted to use. Right. And yet he's also a good example of what I'd call the kind of serial indie app developer, you know, somebody who made a name for himself with Instapaper and and even before then and has had several other sort of successes since then. And and this is kind of the latest of those. And that's one of several ways in which I think the indie developer can still break through is if they either have a name for themselves or everything, get one of the big Apple bloggers to link to them or recommend them or whatever. And, you know, I still feel that there are ways for these, these apps to break through. Um, I'm just looking at my, you know, my home screens on my phone. And yes, you know, the, the first home screens dominated by big names that you'd recognize, although there are a handful of other smaller things in there. But as I swipe through my home screens and look at, you know, some of the games that I use, some of the other apps that I use, I mean, things like Workflow, um, you know, Wonderlist is, is obviously been acquired by Microsoft now. But when it started, when I first using it, it was a little tiny shop. Um, you know, there's a, a camera app called Manual that I use. It's, you know, a little tiny thing. Destructo Math is a an app, a game that I downloaded a while back where, you know, it's small enough that when I provided feedback on the beta, the developer got in touch with me on my email. You know, these are tiny little indie shops and, you know, they are succeeding. You know, I'm discovering their stuff. And that's the thing that, that uh, Brent Simmons kind of closes his piece with is kind of saying, you know, maybe we can get back to the days where we recommend stuff. And it's like, well, I still discover stuff and recommend it to people all the time. I don't feel like those days are gone either, even if, you know, the app store may be dominated by big companies and big names. Yeah, I, I mean, it all comes down to attention, right? I, I mean, the apps that you've mm-hmm. listed are there because somehow they got your attention. It's hard to get people's right. attention. Uh, and mm-hmm. money is one of the ways to make that less hard. And indie developers, right. Yeah, right, unless they're taking yeah. either angel investment or venture capital, they have a harder time getting the money to get attention. And so unless mm-hmm. they're sort of graced by, you know, um, like John Gruber, for example, with a Twitter mention or, or, right. or a brief post, um, they're just not going to make it that far. I mean, I hate to be, I, I hate to cast, you know, doubt on Vesper, for example, the note-taking app um, right. that Brent worked on it, 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 together with John Gruber. But, but I wonder, you know, if they had approached that without John Gruber's cachet, I, I wonder how far right. the app Absolutely. would have It would have been a very different story. Yeah. yeah. No, I don't doubt that at all. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, all of that kind of leads us into the last little segment, which is a new segment for us, which we're calling our weekly pick. And uh, this is something that I kind of thought up a few weeks ago, but we, uh, we haven't kind of implemented until today. But Brent Simmons' post kind of reminded me that, you know, this would be a good thing to do. Um, you know, as I say, he closed his post by kind of talking about, you know, downloading apps and recommending apps to each other that, that weren't from the big companies. And so what we thought we'd do is just spend, you know, a minute at the end of each episode with one of us, and we'll probably take turns in doing this. Uh, recommending something that we've discovered that we like and it might be an app it might be a book it might be a movie it might be a song or an album uh, or an artist you know from the music side of things Um, you know probably something that you can download within the Apple ecosystem most times I would guess Um, but that's a new segment that we're going to do so um, Aaron's uh, on duty this week so he's going to share something that he's discovered recently so I'm I've always been a big fan of Motown music Um, in fact there's this really cheesy a lifetime movie about the temptations that uh, for some reason gets me emotional every time I watch it. <laughs> and uh, maybe that's why I married a girl from Detroit is because of, uh, you know, her connection to Motown. And I've been to the Motown Museum. I mean, really cool 
to to stand there in the studios where Stevie Wonder recorded, you know, a lot of his famous stuff, Temptations, other famous musicians from that era. So I've always really enjoyed that classic R&B um, of the Motown era. And so I love it when new artists somehow resurrect that sound. Um, Raphael Sadiq did it a few years back with a great album. Anyway, there's a new one out that does this really well. It's a new artist named Leon Bridges. Um, he was discovered in Texas. Uh, he uh, was able to sign uh, with Columbia Records, which is obviously a big, big deal for him. And his first album came out this month in June, and it's called Coming Home. And I, you know, I just everything I. Every single track really evokes that era, and but he does it in a way that still feels modern and engaging, um, and it's all very unique and interesting. But it just has that same vibe of that era. So if you're if you're a fan at all of of Motown or any of those classic songs from that from from that time period, I, I really think you would love Leon Bridges and his new album Coming Home. Uh, in fact, for me, that's kind of what it felt like was coming home to this music that I've listened to for years. Fantastic. Thanks, Aaron. Do you have a favorite track? I really like the song Better Man. It's got a great cadence and rhythm to it and a fantastic lyric about how he'd swim the Mississippi River to prove his love. Uh, it's a really fun song. I think I think everybody would like it. Great. Thanks, Aaron. I'll play that song as we fade out today as well so you get a chance to hear it, but go check it out if you think it's the kind of thing you might be interested in. Thanks, as always, for joining us, and we'll see you next week. To get back to your heart I'd swim the Mississippi River If you would give me another start, girl